0: Welcome back, friends, citizens of the Do Our Things Nation, to another episode of the Do Our Things Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Teagues, leadership trainer, speaker, adventure coach, founder of the Do Our Things Nation, and I'd like to welcome you to yet another episode. And uh, This podcast is about learning, growth, and leveling up so you can be the best version of yourself and achieve your highest potential. In today's episode, honored to have Michael Terry with us from Dispatch Adventure Rides. Is that Am I saying that right? Dispatch Adventure Rides? Uh, dispatches, yeah. You hit the post. Yeah. No. So... We, uh, we connected in a, uh, in a similar, uh, just a veterans group. And I uh, had a lot of interest because, uh, you know, Mike is really into, um, you know, long distance motorcycle riding. And when I learned about what he was doing and talk openly talking about uh, PTSD and his service, I'm like, Oh, I got to connect with Mike. And, uh, really and so I'm honored to have you on because there's a lot of commonality. I have a lot of general interest in you. Uh, so thanks for coming on. Um, well, thanks for having me, Jay. So, before we get into uh, today's conversation, make sure you smash that subscribe button so you're notified of future episodes. We're on all your podcast platforms, we're on YouTube. But no matter what platform you're on, iTunes is like the gold standard for reviews. So, I ask that if you've gained any value, please go over to iTunes, leave us a review. It goes a long way with uh, expanding our reach and it means a lot to uh, us. Leave us a fair review, and uh, I read every one of them, they mean a lot. And uh, let us know what you think about the show. Uh, Share it with two of your friends. There's probably a nugget or something that's going to come out of this conversation today that could really serve somebody. That's the intent of this podcast. So take a screenshot, share it with your friends and give us some feedback. Reach out to me directly, reach out to Mike Terry, let him know what you thought. And uh, you can, you know, hit us up on social, all the notes and links and contact information will be in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Lion's Guide. Lion's Guide is a growth agency and we feel that everyone's a leader and, you know, leaders can always continue to grow. Being the one in charge can be incredibly overwhelming at times. Without the right support, you feel like you're hardly keeping up with demands, struggle to maintain your staff and your team. You find yourself overwhelmed and maybe lacking confident. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Lion's Guide helps leaders like you gain the confidence, accomplish more and earn the personal freedom you sought to achieve. And we can help you with the online academy, group coaching, one-on-one coaching and organizational workshops. So let Lion's Guide help you solve your leadership challenges Go to www.lionsguide.com. This episode is also brought to you by UARD, the University of Applied Research and Development, who are helping veterans obtain their bachelor and master's degree in emergency management. You can study abroad in New Zealand for a short tour or a long tour up to three months, fully funded by the VA uh, using your GI Bill Voc Rehab. This is specifically for U.S. veterans. Get maximum credit for your military service. It's non-traditional and uh, it's a great way to experience the amazing cultural beauty of new zealand you can reach out to me directly you can go to www.doourthingsnation.com. click on do hard things down under or you can go to the university website www.uard.university and uh, finally uh, you know we've got a bunch of merch we've got uh, the do hard things apparel line we got hats and hoodies and high quality gear if you're out there crushing it so go show the world that you do hard things go to dohardthingsnation.com go grab yourself some apparel and uh and that's it that's all the, that's the business end so let me introduce you, introduce to you Michael Terry. Michael Terry is a 23-year veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces. He retired in 2018 due to complications arising from post-traumatic stress disorder and immediately began to feel the effects of depression, loneliness, isolation, as well as loss of identity and purpose. To combat these side effects, Michael began to ride his motorcycle around Canada and to speak openly about his struggles living with PTSD and his challenges transitioning to civilian life not only has this forced him to face his own issues head-on it's also allowed him to continue to service the community to challenge himself mentally and physically and to find new passion and purpose and to begin the healing process and uh, so thanks for thanks for coming on i'm really excited to have you here and uh, i guess just what did i miss tell us a little bit about what you uh, what you do who you are uh well thanks for having me on
1: jay so uh yeah as as uh, my bio said i you know, I did 23 years in the Canadian Armed Forces, joined right out of high school, like so many of us do, um, kind of the only job I had in my adult life, really. Uh, I was actually deployed three times to, uh, Bosnia 99, Ethiopia, Eritrea in 2000, 2001, and Afghanistan in 2008. And yeah, I was actually diagnosed with PTSD after I returned from Africa in 2001. So I served, uh, another 17 years post-injury, um, and really just, you know, at the end of my career, I just started to notice I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, uh, I was minimizing. I was kind of denying my injury, you know, just always proving that I'm okay. And it just caught up with me over time. So, yeah, that kind of, uh, that led to my release and really just, uh, you know, kind of being in a bad spot and deciding, you know what, um, I've got to do something positive. So I did what any normal sane person would do. I bought a motorcycle and, you know, toured this, uh this huge country and talked about my feelings, you know, as comes naturally to us old grunts, right? We we love talking about that stuff. So um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the Coles notes. That's kind of, yeah, that's how I got, uh, uh, got started in veteran and, and mental health advocacy.
0: I'm going to assume, uh, you know, your military being very similar to our military in a lot of different ways, probably in that time period, if you were to talk about PTSD and trauma and mental health, I, I know, during that timeframe kind of looked down upon that could be potentially a career ender. Did you find yourself in the same type of situation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I was a young corporal, just newly promoted, uh, when I was diagnosed in 2001, uh, I had a young family, just bought a house, you know, being a soldier is all I ever wanted to do. It's all I had done. And I was pretty much convinced that my, my career was over right then and there back in 2001. If you were diagnosed with PTSD, it was pretty much, It was pretty much a one-way ticket um, out of the forces. You know, you could look around and ask yourself, you know, how many guys here do I know who are diagnosed with PTSD? And the answer is none because they're not here. Um, So, yeah, no, I definitely, um, I kind of tread the line of being very open and honest about it um, and overcompensated by being an overachiever and a workaholic. So it kind of let me hide in plain sight, I guess, is the way to kind of describe it. You know, everybody knew I was, kind of everybody knew I was diagnosed with PTSD, but everybody said, "Well, you know, he's always here, he's always performing, so I guess everything's okay." And
0: yeah, that he's was functioning, the- he's working hard, right? He's grinding it out. He's someone you can count on, so it must be all right.
1: Yep, exactly. And of course, that's a lie I told myself as well. You know, uh, you point to all the hard, you know, all the work you do. Like, oh, look at all the stuff I'm accomplishing. Obviously, I'm okay. So, yeah. it's, uh, but I mean, I led the, I led a very um, I led a double life. You know, at work, I was one guy. I was, you know, I was always there. I was, you know, always laughing. I was the life of the party. And at home, I was just a completely different person. You know, just completely withdrawn, isolated, angry, or or numbed out completely.
0: Hmm. So, is that suffering and silence um, syndrome essentially? It's, uh, I've, I've I've been there myself. And it's like, yeah, it's like you're playing two different characters.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And anytime you know, anytime you're outside of the house, it's like you're on all the time. So then when you do get back home, like uh, that, that entire facade crumbles like really quickly, you know, and of course the family bears the brunt of that. So, yeah. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, uh, all my personal relationships, you know, the very few people who were close to me that I allowed to remain close to me, you know, those those relationships underwent a tremendous amount of stress and, you know, I'm still working to repair some of those relationships. So,
0: yeah. What kind of toll did that take on you? The, the, just to kind of, stuffing it away and, and just, you know, not, not dealing with it effectively or.
1: Uh, well, constant, almost a constant state of depression. Um, I was really angry through most of my career, you know, always just on the edge of anger. Um, and I mean, and, 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 and in contrast, when I released, I started to experience a lot of anxiety and panic attacks and, you know, really, because anger is a, it's a deflection. You know, um, it's a it's an emotion you project outward. So, uh, you know, I was really shaken when I first released because I'm like, why am I having so much anxiety? I've never been a fearful person. There's never been an issue before, but it's because I was actually working on things and getting below the anger to you know, because the root cause of that anger was always anxiety. I'm going to be found out, or I'm you know, my job's going to end. All those things. So yeah, I was just angry all the time, and of course. Uh, you know, being angry all the time takes that physical and mental toll on you. So I was always exhausted physically, emotionally, cognitively, um, you know, and, and, uh, and the other thing I think that kind of eats away at you is you're, you're not necessarily lying to people, but you're, you're, you're being disingenuous. Come on. You, oh, sorry. Just one second. That's no, all good. I'm on a call, honey. <laughs> <laughs> my wife just came home <laughs> um yeah you know you're kind of living this double life like you're you're this one person at work and so you know uh that feeds into that imposter syndrome or just this low level feeling like you're being dishonest so and of course that has that has an emotional impact as well in, in how you relate to people and how you view yourself
0: Yeah. The feeling of being dishonest, right? Because you're playing, uh, you're, you're trying to not, you don't want to show people your hand. You don't want to show you're playing that character, right? So you're projecting this image, but deep down inside, like it wears on you, wears on your subconscious. It makes you feel maybe a little guilty. I think that amplifies the depressive depression tendencies, right? You don't want people to find out who you really are.
1: Yeah. And, and, um, I found, I I think that was a big problem I have with self-worth came from that as well. I'm sure there are other causes to it. I I think, you know, um, all of it's a big stew, right? But uh, yeah, definitely, you know, just, yeah, just living this double life. You know, it it just wears you out completely. And it really gets in the way of you showing the true, you know, your true self to, to people, even the people close to you, because they're getting a version of you that's just completely wrung out you know, by the time they, you know, you're, you're in that position where you're with them. So, yeah.
0: yeah. I, I don't know if you want to share this or not, but is there like a specific incident that happened? I mean, I'm assuming there was something that happened that really amplified the PTSD. If you don't want to go into it, we don't have to talk about it.
1: But... Oh, well, yeah. I mean, so, um, there was an incident in, in Africa that actually got me diagnosed and it was a, uh, um, it was a close encounter with a black mamba. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when it happened, uh, it was two Eritrean soldiers who actually, you know, came running at me, um, you know, shouting into Grinion, which I don't speak. So I I couldn't understand, you know, what they're saying, but they're motioning me away from where I was sitting next to my uh, uh, coyote, which I think you guys call a lav too. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, when I got up, the snake slithered away. And what I found out later was, you know, it was a black mamba. Um, We were an hour from camp. Our position was an hour from camp. Our camp was about two hours flight from the main body uh, and there's no anti-venom anywhere in the country. So if that snake had bitten me, I would have, you know, I probably would have, I would have had about seven to 15 hours of living in, you know, extreme discomfort and then I would have died. So that had happened and it wasn't until about five months later uh, at a dinner party that a guy asked me, hey, anything, you know, any crazy stories from Africa? And I said, no, it was quiet, you know, not much happened. And then I remembered this story and shared it with him. And I had a response, you know, five months after the fact. I'd actually forgotten about it. Um, So my wife was livid um, because she said, you know, you could have died. You didn't tell me. Why'd you keep that from me? And I said, no, I honestly forgot. You know, we might have talked about it in camp that morning. And then we just went on doing what we do. That's, you know, stuff happens. You just carry on. Um, So we were actually seeing a marriage counselor. And I mentioned that to the marriage counselor about forgetting about the snake. And that's how I got referred for assessment, and we found out, yeah, you have an operational stress injury with PTSD, major depressive disorder, and adjustment disorder. So, you know, yeah. that was 24 years old, very early into that career, and yeah, that's that's so that's what got me diagnosed. Um, what saw me out the door 17 years later uh, was a posting. Um, by this time, I was an imagery technician, as a photographer, and they're posting me to. Uh, to Shiloh, Manitoba, to an army base there. It's, you know, it's a small place and not a lot of people want to go there. I don't know. Like I, they send you guys to Alaska when you're bad, right?
0: Uh, yeah, we've got we got a few, we got a few places worse than that. We've yeah, got, they, like, send, they send us Fort to Shiloh. Fort Louisiana, uh, <laughs> New York, you know, up in uh, Fort Drum. Those are yeah. usually worse. <laughs> so, uh,
1: and I, I jest. I mean, I was actually just in Shiloh last week. But, um, yeah, so I got this posting and it was a dream job. Uh, I was going to be a photographer on an army base, army guys doing army stuff, pretty much going to be my own boss. And I had this severe reaction. I, I didn't, you know, to being posted, I didn't want to be posted. And that was the cue to me that said, I can't tolerate living this life anymore. So yeah, that, those are the kind of the two experiences that bookended, um, you know, my diagnosis in the end of that career, because my chain of command and, and my trade, were adamant that I was going to be posted. So it turned into, uh, yeah, my last year of service got real messy because of that. You're we just at odds over me needing care and, and uh, kind of being told, no, you're going here. Um, so there's a bit of that moral injury that comes into it, you know, hmm. um, and it's, it, and I see it over, you know, I, I saw it in myself. I've seen it over and over. You know, you go from being a rock star, a high performer, and then, you know, one day it's just full stop. I can't do this anymore, um, which is, you know, looking back and, and speaking to other people, I realize that is the recipe of somebody who's been minimizing for years and overcompensating for years. One day it's just, boom, I can't do this anymore. And then the chain of command sees you being, oh, you're a rock star. Oh, you got this posting. You don't want to go there. And now suddenly you're shutting down and they see it as posting avoidance and it becomes a, you know, it became an issue. Um, so that, you know, there's uh, the way we handle releases. And I don't know if it's the same for you guys the forces is not the best at that here. It's very hard to uh um for for members who are injured, uh it can be very hard that release process because you go from hero to zero real quick sometimes, which was definitely what I experienced. Um and because all my personal relationships were so bad, I was married to the job, and then when it feels like the institution turns on you, there's that moral injury that comes with that as well. So Those were kind of the two experiences that bookended, you know, my career in terms of having PTSD.
0: Yeah. So like when you got out, like your whole, like all of your friends, your whole identity, everything, like you're leaving it all behind. Right. Which can exasperate a lot of things. And I really like what you you highlighted. We tend to minimize things and overcompensate for things. I look back in my career, my life in general, I've definitely found myself doing things like that. Downplaying certain things that happened to me, like it wasn't a big deal, blah, 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 or, uh, and then overcompensating by trying to be a high performer or put on just to put on that show, right? That uh, yep. as a way to just kind of shield yourself and keep yourself in this like cocoon of safety, if you will. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think the other part too is there's this constant, there was this constant need to prove that I belonged, mm. right? Because I was worried about you know, I'm affected by PTSD, I'm going to lose my job. So I have to constantly prove that I belong here. Um, You know, so you're always just trying to go harder, harder, harder. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and I mean, eventually, I mean, that is a recipe for burnout. Uh, absolutely. And again, like, I, like I said, you know, the, the, the Canadian forces, the Canadian armed forces, and the people I served with, they became my family, because I didn't have any other family, you know, I was pretty much alienated um and not able to connect at home the way i needed to be able to so you know i wasn't maintaining healthy relationships outside of work that was my world uh so when it felt like that kind of turned on me you know that was absolutely devastating in addition to losing purpose losing identity um losing the mental and physical challenges that had really kind of sustained me th- that whole time that's you know um yeah constantly proving yourself against you know uh, that environment really kind of helped keep uh, a lot of the PTSD at bay, or it kept me from feeling a lot of the effects of it. Um, so in 2012, I went from the infantry to being a photographer and that's when life's, you know, that's when, that's when it started to catch up with me when life got easier. That's when I started to really struggle with it because there weren't, there wasn't all this distraction kind of built into my day-to-day life.
0: So mm, when life got easier, that's when you really started to notice
1: them. Yeah, Absolutely. And then that next step, of course, was retiring and becoming a civilian and life, you know, takes that that next step down in intensity. And then again, um, you know, finding how to keep myself occupied. You know, um, I don't have this thing that, you know, I identify as anymore. So, you know, and, and really having to reinvent myself.
0: Yeah. Well, I find it fascinating that trauma just comes in all sorts, sorts of shapes and sizes. And it's a fascinating thing how your mind blocks it out like anything traumatic that's happened to you it's very difficult to remember what happened right you're 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 because it's a way for your 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 mind to like safeguard you from from the harm and reliving that so it's interesting that you said that you had a hard time uh recounting that and like oh that was a trigger point for me like that was something that because we minimized it right as not being a big deal but it did have some effect on you
1: yeah yeah nothing happened i didn't get bit yeah You know, um, but it was that part where my mind blanked on it. And I've had that experience with other, you know, much more severe events as well. Um, One of the other things I noticed, and it came up in my ride this year, is there's a lot of past events that I do remember and I've spoken about and I feel like, oh, that doesn't, you know, that never affected me. Um, And then now that, you know, my, my perspective has very much changed from, you know, minimization and denial to facing it head on and healing through it. And, of course, you know, without opening that different perspective, you know, you open yourself up and things things impact you in different ways. And, you know, I was riding through northern BC and I came upon a, a horse that had been hit by a car. And, I mean, it was sad. It was kind of left alone and, you know, nobody really cared. But it actually brought up this, it tied into this event from Ethiopia in, in 2001 um, where I saw a fellow soldier, an Ethiopian soldier, rather, die. And nobody really cared. Like, his own people just you know, the, the body wasn't even done twitching and they were stripping his boots and his watch off. And there was this indifference to that. And I remember commenting on it for years. I told the story and thought, yeah, it just kind of, well, it kind of sucks, but you know, no big deal. Uh, But it's funny being faced with this animal that was mortally um, injured and going door to door to find somebody to to help me identify the owner and, and maybe, you know, find some help and, and kind of meeting with that indifference uh, towards life and that feeling of helplessness it really brought that event back. And I realized, you know, I, I I think like 20 years later, I'm having an emotional reaction to that event that I did not have an emotional reaction to ever before. So, you know, we, um, you know, we, we become accustomed to the exceptional. We experience things that are way outside of the norm on a day-to-day basis, and it normalizes it. And we don't realize, you know, um, I know I've told stories to, to civilian acquaintances and I'll, I'll tell them something that happened and they'll say, Oh man, that's, that's crazy. And I'll be like, well, it was a Tuesday. you know. That could be any day of the week. That's just, it's just life. That's normal. You know um, most people deal with, you know, one, maybe two really significant trauma events in their life, maybe. And, you know, for us, for first responders, we go from one to the next to the next to the next and it becomes so normalized. We just, We don't even, it doesn't even show up on the radar. Uh, It really wasn't until, you know, I dropped the armor, let my guard down, that I had an emotional reaction to some of these things. And it's, yeah, I'm still finding things kind of percolating to the surface. And probably, you know, it's 20 years of minimization and denial. This is probably going to, I'm probably going to find that for a while. Hmm.
0: When did when did the this when did the switch come on? Like you know, I'm ready to talk about these things. I'm ready to really deal with this head on. When when was that? Um, Well,
1: that was right after I retired in April 2018. Um, I was in bad shape that last year of service. Like I said, was very contentious with with the forces, with my chain of command, and my trade, and that really took a toll. And yeah, it, it was actually a friend of mine named Sheldon Roberts, and uh, Sheldon was a sniper in second battalion the royal canadian regiment where you know i was in the same same regiment same battalion um we he and i deployed on two two of the same missions together uh you know he's somebody i looked to as a a mentor somebody i respected and we'd lost a mutual friend um and his brother his brother to suicide uh the mutual friend to heart failure both veterans and he was on uh on television giving an interview and he was talking about the struggles that he has with PTSD and in relation to you know losing those friends and what they 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 might have been experiencing and as I sat there listening to Sheldon you know his and my experiences you know were were different but the struggles he was talking about I have you know almost all the same struggles and as I sat there listening to him I realized you know what I I don't see him any differently Uh, You know, I haven't lost any respect for him. I don't judge him harshly. If anything, I respect him more for having the courage to speak out about that. And I realized that I judge myself harshly. I still beat myself up for having those same struggles. And that's where I said, you know what? Like, that's that doesn't make sense. So I'm going to go out and talk about it and take ownership of it. You know, Uh, I'm going to face it. And by sharing that, maybe somebody else will hear me and say, well, if that guy can talk about it, then I can talk about it, too. So that's mm. yeah, that was that. That was that turning point, and and honestly, it was right uh, almost immediately after release, uh, because you know, come April 2018, I was on the verge of suicide when I left the forces, and oh, wow. yeah, completely alienated from from family, didn't live near anybody that I deployed with, and you know, moved to a small town to go to school where I knew absolutely nobody, and that was where I kind of looked around and said, this is this is bad. I've got five months before school starts, and uh, you know I was going on to uh, uh, to take college courses. And if I sit here by myself for five months, I'm I'm not going to school. So that was the uh, that was the inspiration to ride the bike. And Sheldon provided the inspiration to go out and talk about it.
0: Did you find? I, I'm assuming it's probably similar in Canada, where it's just difficult for a service member to just connect with civilians. Right? There's like so. There's just such a divide on, you know, just our community in the military, our experiences. It's very difficult to just connect and, and share and just have that shared understanding. I'm assuming it's the same up there.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, well, I released with some serious trust issues, <laughs> um, but also, you know, that feeling that I'm never going to be able to connect with people who don't have shared experience or or similar experience to my own. And I even found that within the forces, people who didn't come from that infantry background, who didn't have some of that same experience, I had a hard time connecting with them. Uh, so yeah, so for civilians even even much more to the to the point. And uh, you know, two months into going to school, you know, college college level curriculum, which isn't difficult, I was ready to I was ready to quit. Uh, I was exhausted. I felt alone. I felt you know co- kind of completely isolated. I was filtering everything I thought and said. So, you know, I was exhausted all the time. Um, But when I started to open up to the people around me and speak about things at an emotional level and the human level, instead of focusing on the experiences, what I found was that was the doorway to connecting with people from all backgrounds. Because everybody in this world has experienced loss. Everybody in this world has experienced grief. Maybe not always to the degree that that all of us have or the frequency. But everybody can understand those struggles. Everybody can understand or a lot of people can understand what it feels like to be depressed. And when I opened up and started to be a little more vulnerable and a bit more forthcoming, people started to come to me. And it was funny, you know, because uh, I was an infantry instructor at one time. and we can, we can have a bit of a vibe about us, right? <laughs> a little bit, you know, we idle a little about a, about an eight. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I felt like as a civilian, uh, you know, I'd been an imagery technician, a photographer for a while, and I kind of brought it down a notch and I felt, okay, I'm pretty calm. And then I, I released from the forces and I felt like, okay, I'm pretty calm. But uh, when I opened up and started connecting with the people around me, you know, and they, they were comfortable enough to come forward and say, look, man, we didn't know what to do with you. You're this, army guy sitting in the corner, just vibrating with this intensity that we don't, you know, like, it was intimidating. And I felt like I was, I felt like I was pretty chill. Um, but there's still that tone. Um, so yeah, a lot of them, you know, I, I felt alone because they were, they were afraid to take that first step. And once I started to open up and just be very honest about a lot of these things um, and talk about things on an emotional human level the world kind of opened up to me. It, it's still difficult. I still need that connection with uh, veteran and first responder friends who understand who get it. Um, but, you know, I've also been able to, to build relationships with people who didn't come from those communities. Um, yeah. It's just, you got to take that leap of faith, you know, and it's, and it's hard to do. And uh, especially, like I said, coming out of things the way I did, I had six years of being a photographer and feeling like I was misunderstood and alienated, even though I was still in the uniform. So, you know, it was a big leap to think that people who never even had that experience were going to be able to, I was going to be able to connect with them, but yeah, by and by i I, I kind of found the way.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I had uh, I brought this analogy up a few times, but you know, we in the military, we've learned how to play rugby full contact. <laughs> and when you depart the service, everyone's playing soccer so a lot of things look the same the uniform looks similar the pitch looks similar but we're out there tackling people scoring touchdowns they're like red card yellow card what are you doing I'm like I'm trying to win the game and like you're playing it all wrong and we can go and be like you know what I'm just a rugby player and you don't get me and, and stay with our rugby friends but I think the transition process the more effective way is to figure out start start using the skills that made you really good at rugby and learn how to play soccer again and reintegrate with everyone else that's out there playing soccer.
1: Yep. Um, and, and that was definitely my experience as a photographer. You know, um, I went from being an, an infantry instructor to a photographer, you know, candidate, a student. And, and it was a, it was an air force tech trade at the time. So it was all, it was completely blue and my head exploded on a daily basis. So you went
0: from the army to the air force.
1: Yep. Okay. Now, now, the, the trade, the imagery technician trade a couple years later or a year later went uh, purple, we call it. So all, all elements. So I scooted back to the Army just as quick as I could because mm-hmm. um, blue wasn't my color. But, uh, <laughs> but really, you know, that failure to connect and being at odds with the people around me, uh, you know, in that image tech trade, I was basically sitting there going, yeah, you guys aren't doing it right. I'm going to show you how to do it and I'm going to bring you all up here with me kind of, that was, that was that thought that I had in my mind, right? A um, little bit of hubris there. So, you know, instead of me adapting to my environment, I was trying to change my environment to be, to adapt to me, to be what was comfortable and normal for me. And I think having that failed trans, cause I counted as a failed transition. I, I did fairly well as an image tech, but you know um, it was my exit and it was a failed transition. So having that under my belt I think really was a huge plus when it came time to retire because I already had some lessons learned. I already had, I already took some knocks from this and said, okay, that didn't work last time. I need a new approach. But, um, you know, so, so many of us, I think we leave the forces and, you know, I couldn't tolerate being in that environment anymore. Like it wasn't healthy for me, but I didn't really want to leave. I just had to. And we get out and we feel like, Oh, nobody's going to understand me but we, we kind of want everything to be the way it was. We don't want to change to, to come into that environment. We want to stay the way we are and expect people to come to us. And it's just, you know, it's just not a realistic expectation. Um, so, you know, clinging to those values and clinging to those expectations, you know, is projecting those expectations onto the people around me. And then I was disappointed and frustrated. And, you know, I said, Oh, well, they're the problem. No, it's obviously not me, but, um, yeah, it took a lot to get over myself and say, you know what, I can still keep my values and my expectations for myself, and not force those expectations onto everybody around me. And I can, you know, and, and I can connect with people. That was a big thing when I stopped. When I stopped expecting those people to to behave like me, to think like me, um, you know, that's where that's when those connections started to happen.
0: Mm. No, uh, I've definitely felt that. That's why I stayed in the army for as long as I did 27 years, because I got to a point where I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I don't know how I'm going to integrate. I did. I did some volunteer work with civilians. It didn't turn out very well. I was kind of hot-headed and angry and it just like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Uh, that, so that gave me like, kind of like you that gave me like my first inkling of that transition. Cause I'm like, I have to change my approach. Like it doesn't, my leadership approach and style in the military isn't going to work out so well here in the civilian sector but then I also found the organization was changing so much like I'm kind of over this stuff too and I kind of found myself like apprehensive about the transition but then I realized I need to start working on myself like to make that transition I got to work on my which that that led to this podcast and the performance coaching that I'm doing now and I tell people like all of this is part of my healing process and part of me learning and, and making that bridge and trying to help because I know that I'm not alone in that and realizing that there's other people that are struggling with this too. And so I, I can empathize with all of that, which is, you know, lends me to, I guess, transitioning now to your healing, which is the, the, the adventures, right. The dispatches. And so can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about that, how that got started and what, 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 do you do with it?
1: Um, well, I mean, I started, I was a dispatch rider in the forces way back in like 2002
0: Yeah, what is that? Um, What what is is that? uh, So, dispatch rider,
1: you were you were a motorcycle messenger. Um, Mm -hmm. So basically, the summer you had the motorcycle, the winter you had a jeep, and you ran hard copies of orders and map traces between uh, between units and locations. You know, um, of course, come two thousand two, we started to have encrypted communications. Afghanistan is asymmetrical warfare, so bombing around there on a motorcycle, you know, in twos is not a great idea. Um, so, you know, the, they they canceled the the rider program in I want to say two thousand three. So, I wasn't a dispatch rider very long. I never did it operationally, uh, but that was how I got started with motorcycling. And uh, yeah, did you know really... how to
0: ride before then? Or oh you, yeah
1: no, I did a bit of mountain biking, but that was it. Uh, which uh translated fairly well except i kept getting the back brake and the front brake uh, mixed up so that kind of sucked for a while um i yeah. <laughs> learned how to drop a bike though let me tell you um yeah so that's how i got started with motorcycling and you know i was uh well i'm an army geek through and through um once i got my leadership training you know and and, and learned you know for the formally learned battle procedure and planning process I picked that up, you know, re- real quick and started using that to plan my own excursions, canoe trips, hiking trips, things like that. Um, so I really honed that tool. So when I released, I thought, you know what, I've, I've got the opportunity. I'm going to buy a bike. So I bought a, uh, a KLR 650, which is a big brother of the bike I learned on. Um, and I put that planning process to work and planning, you know, two and a half, a 75 day tour all across Canada uh, to you know, to go out and share and, and ride and, and see the country. I'd never seen it all, you know. Uh, Canada's huge. So, yeah, that was kind of how I, I started, you know. The adventuring has always been a side of it, especially when I became a photographer. I started oh, to plan a, a lot, lot of, of my own... Pardon me. Once I became a photographer, I started to plan a lot of my own kind of hiking, canoeing adventures, like long distance, because I missed that challenge. Oh, so you know, so I kind of had developed that tool before I released. Um, but I love going through the planning process. I love solving, solving kind of the logistical and tactical problems, uh, you know, and building myself a schedule and then keeping myself to it, you know, so, you know, come up with an idea, make it a reality and then, you know, will it into, will it into being. So yeah, that was kind of that natural way to turn, uh, in terms of, you know, um, Of finding that purpose and passion uh it's been a way for me to take that military experience i have and apply it in the civilian world because i'm constantly you know looking at that planning procedure and 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 kind of all those different leadership lessons and saying okay how does this apply to me now how can i employ this how can i leverage it um which is also a huge part of transition because especially being a grunt you know what do you do when you get out you know, I, if I'm, I'm going to go apply for a job at McDonald's and they say, what are you good at? Well, I can lay an 81 millimeter mortar and I'm real good with a light machine gun. That doesn't really help me. So I am good at mopping floors too. So maybe that would get me in the door, but, (laughs) um, you know, so really, I think a lot of us struggle with what value do I have in the civilian world? And there's a lot of those, you know, quote unquote, soft skills that we have that with a little bit of tweaking, we can find where they fit. And once, uh, you know, once your civilian counterparts kind of catch on to your ability to do some of these things, you become, you know, you become a resource. They, you know, it's it's appreciated. It is highly sought after. Um, but it's just about, yeah, just examining kind of all your skills, your values, your perceptions and saying, okay, is there anything here I'm clinging to needlessly that I can let go of? Is there anything I can repurpose? Is there anything that just needs this little tweak to kind of fit in with my new reality? Mm-hmm. And it's it's an exhausting process, but it's just having that curiosity and looking at it like that. And I don't, I've kind of lost the thread here. Did I answer your question, Jay? No, you're
0: good. That that's, that goes back to uh, you know getting really good at rugby, and how can you take what you really, what made you really good there? Obviously, you can't tackle people in, in soccer. Hell, I think if you just kick the ball, they fall down and like pretend it's yeah. hurt got to be very careful, right? But there's that speed and agility and all those other things, all the things that, you know, it, 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 you're right. It's the softer skills. It's like the, you know, the, the, the counseling sessions, right. That we, that we do with our soldiers yeah. and subordinates and uh, non-commissioned officers. Well, those are performance appraisals, you know, and there's, there's a variety of different things that you do there. That, that, that level of attention to detail, the showing up on time, to getting things accomplished, all those things are highly sought after. Uh, yeah. it, it, to the, to the businesses that, that have figured it out and appreciated it because there's some businesses that still don't understand, but I know that there's some businesses out there that recruit specifically for that because they understand the value that veterans bring.
1: Yeah. And it's funny. I, I started teaching, um, college last fall. So I actually taught in the program that I graduated from. I teach advocacy and leadership at Fanshawe college and I always loved teaching, you know, came, you know, so I came right to it very naturally, But I, you know, you know, through this is my first experience kind of teaching the civilian world for a formal organization. I've taught workshops and things before. Um, But, you know, I realized, you know, a few other things, too. You know, I was hired on as as a professor. And in my mind, that immediately means I'm a leader. I'm a counselor. I'm a teacher. Because the, that was that was all part and parcel with what we did. Like you said, you know, we counseled, we counseled our, our soldiers, you know, between performance appraisals or counseling them through personal shit because we're in the, you know, we're in the field. There's, you know, you're not taking a time out to, to go talk to somebody else. You know, you as a section commander or 2IC, you're a counselor, you're a leader, you're an educator, you're a coach. And what I realized in the civilian world is a lot of those are broken up. So I was expected to teach and kind of do nothing else. so it was it was a bit of an eye opener for me there as well. So you know um, that's the thing again, my view of a leader of a leader and an educator was it's all of this and coming up against you know a little bit of friction and realizing, okay, you know I've got to kind of break these apart because now I'm part of a I'm part of a machine again, but it's a different machine. It's not the same. Um, But it also was a good eye opener for me to say, you know what, I walked into this, and I'm still carrying perceptions, you know, I still, I still run into those things. And really, it's going out into the world and bumping into things that teaches me, you know, where I need to work. Well, typical dumb grunt, you know, I don't know the stove's hot until, you know, until I put my hand on it. Or I, I don't know not to touch the the barrel I just took off the you know the light machine gun until I burned my hand at least once, maybe a dozen times. Um so going out there and, and kind of running into these challenges has been a huge way for me to have these moments where I go, Oh, okay, I see what I'm I see what I'm doing here. You know, I see what's happening. I'm still holding on to this perception. I need to look at this just a little
0: different. So
1: yeah, that's the the other part of transition that's difficult is you gotta be willing to go out there and bark your shins on stuff to learn.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's how I learned a lot of my lessons the hard way. <laughs> the uh, so the uh, as far as the, the your your speaker tour, when did that uh, start? How how did you get started with that?
1: Uh, well, it really kind of it started with that first ride in two thousand eighteen. Um, now that first ride, I went from you know day one not owning a motorcycle to six weeks later, you know I've got a bike. I've Decked it out for adventure touring. I built a schedule, and I just kind of knit this thing as I went. You know, I'm just going to go out there and talk to people. So it was very unstructured. And over time, you know, in iteration after iteration, you you refine your process. And finally, in uh, in 2021, I said, you know, I need to really focus. Um, you know, I started to say, what's my deliverable? What's the concrete? And I said, well, it's speaking. So maybe I need to start booking just formal speaking engagements. You know, and 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 presenting it that way, and that's that's really how it kind of evolved. It went from me just off the cuff talking to whoever would listen or wanted to have a discussion about PTSD or transition, to me saying, okay, you know, contacting organizations, saying, look, this is what I offer. You know, I'll, I'll come in and speak. I don't I don't charge anything. Uh, this is what I talk about. Do you want to host? And yeah, that's kind of how it evolved. Um, so now I'm what five years in, and last week uh canadian forces Base shiloh actually flew me out for their wellness symposium um so that was the first time i've had uh you know i'm finally at the point where organizations are starting to draw me to them to speak instead of kind of having to to push and wedge my way in uh so yeah that's just been that evolution of it it started started right right in 2018 and just evolved from
0: there that's, that's awesome how how is the how has your healing been to be able to i guess by going through this process, windshield therapy on a motorcycle is the best therapy that's out there. But in addition to just kind of speaking, like how has all of that helped you um, overcome and deal, manage your the PTSD and all the emotions you feel with it?
1: Uh, well, it helps in a lot of ways. Um, so every time I have to speak my story, I have to own it. Um, mm-hmm. So that's step one is I, I've got to face it. I've got to, I've got to own it in order to speak it. Um, as I share it, Different parts of my story on different days will be very activating for me, you know, emotionally, or you can use the word triggered if you like. Um, and that really gives me a roadmap for where I need to focus my efforts next. Because anything that's still activating is like, okay, this is still, you know, if I speak publicly about this and I start to well up, it's like, okay, there's still something there I need to explore. Uh, so it gives me direction with that. As I go out and talk to other people, I get to hear their point of view, I get to hear their feedback on my story, or they share some of theirs. And it gives me other perspectives to look at my own issues from. So there's a lot of reflection. Um, the fact that I am going out to speak and then the next day I'll be on the bike for eight or ten hours traveling to my next location, maybe three or four days in a row, means I've got that time in the helmet to reflect on those those experiences. So it's it's a very uh, it's got a very nice natural cycle to it as far as you know exposure reflection exposure reflection. Um, the other thing though, that I was very concerned about was, you know, I, I suffered from, from some serious white knight syndrome, you know, in the past, in my relationships, in my professional life, you know, where I have taken on everybody else's issues, because if I take on their issues, I don't have to, I don't, I can't focus on my own. I don't have time. Um, and I do see that a bit in veteran advocacy where people are out doing these things and it's just putting off their own needs. And I know I'm susceptible, uh, susceptible to that. Uh, so I'm at high risk for that. So I really kind of framed it, you know, I'm not out trying to save people. I'm out here trying to save myself and I'm inviting other people in to kind of share in that process or witness that process in the hopes that it inspires them to save themselves. Uh, and that's how I kind of work to, to avoid, you know, getting burnt out or, getting into that white knight syndrome where I'm focusing everything outward and I'm not looking after myself. Uh Um, I do still struggle with burnout. Um, I do still, you know, I task saturate. I take on too much because if I keep busy, it keeps the demons at bay. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm still fine tuning how much, you know, I have to be engaged with other things and how much I have to suck back and, and kind of be, be with, sit with myself. So that's still a learning curve, right?
0: Yeah. Being comfortable sitting with yourself. That's, that's a challenge because I, I, I can empathize with with all of that. Uh, that keeping yourself busy keeps the demons at bay. Uh, you sit. You gotta. You gotta love yourself and be able to sit idly with yourself, and that's hard to do.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean we're we're used to uh, you know we're used to just go go go. It's always something, right? So, mm. yeah. When when and that's what I mean. When life slows down and life gets easy, that's when uh, that's when the demons catch up with you. So. Yeah, I, I still have to work on that, work, you know, getting that work-life balance sorted out uh, mm-hmm. and not task saturating to the point where I'm burnt out and overwhelmed all the time. Uh, I definitely struggled with that this fall. Again, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's all one big learning journey. And, and really, I'm just inviting people to come along with me.
0: Someone's listening to this. They know they're battling their inner demons with PTSD and, and anxiety and depression and all those things. What, but they're suffering in silence like, like we, we have been. What, what advice would you give them? to 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 make a change or or break free from those feelings,
1: you know every single time um I've been you know at my worst, you know and I thought I've hit rock bottom it's always been talking about it that has saved me every single time without exception. it's going out and making connections with people uh it's going out and you know facing it, owning it you know and and the analogy I use is you know, Uh, PTSD, any mental health affliction is a bully. And what, what do bullies do? They isolate you. They alienate you. They tell you you don't have a voice. They tell you that nobody cares. And then they become the only voice in your ear. And what the voice was whispering to me was, you know what? You're broken. You're worthless. You're unlovable. You're undesirable. You don't deserve love. You don't deserve happiness. And that's the voice I was hearing in my head. When I went out and started reaching out to people and opening up, when I started connecting with people and realizing, you know what, I'm not alone in my struggles, and I could see them realizing they're not alone in theirs. When you basically take that voice away from the bully, when you take that power away from the bully by speaking up, the bully goes away. Um, hmm. You're still affected by it, but you now have power to deal with it. Uh, but if that's the only voice you have, is that internal voice that's, that's constantly beating you down, um, you know, that's that's where we get pushed into the kill zone is, you know, is really the way I describe it. That's you getting pushed mm-hmm. out into the middle of no man's land. And, 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 you know, eventually that's where you're going to die. So you got to keep those connections. You got to talk about it.
0: Mm. Got to punch the bully in the nose. I always told my kids. You Absolutely. You know, know how you, how you stop a bully, you punch them in the nose. They'll leave you alone. They're going to go to the next, uh, you know, they, what they look for, they look for people that are going to give least resistance.
1: Yep. Uh, PTSD is a coward. It waits, it waits till you're alone. If you're not, you know, and if you make sure that you don't dwell in that space alone uh, it's going to have, it's going to have limited, it's still going to impact you, but it's going to have, you know, it's going to limit that
0: impact a great deal. PTSD is a coward. I love that. (laughs) PTSD is a coward. Well, so what, what do you have working on? When, when's your, when's your next uh, trip?
1: Uh, So my next trip is coming up in uh, at the end of May, beginning of June. And I'll be spending about six weeks on the road. I'm going to be doing Eastern Canada this year, um, three and a half months. It was great post-COVID to get another, you know, epic 33,000-kilometer journey all around Canada in. Um, But I found by taking a smaller ride, I can focus my outreach more, hopefully reach more people in that shorter period of time. And, um, you know, three and a half months, when I first did it, as a single guy. You know, I was renting a place, so I basically, you know, I packed up and left. I came home. Nothing had been touched. Everything was right where I left it. I had no responsibilities, so it was easy to do. Uh, three and a half months away from home, away from my wife, away from my dog. Trying to reconnect with work afterwards was too long. So, uh, so yeah, it'll be a bit more focused, east coast, uh, headed up to Labrador, Newfoundland. So I'll, I'll be getting out into the wilds and, and doing some outreach in places that don't typically see it. Uh, which is also kind of the um, kind of that underlying theme of being a dispatch rider—you carry that message everywhere, regardless of whether there's a road or not, or roads left less traveled. Um, so that's coming up next fall. You know, I should be getting back to teaching with Fanshawe College, and uh, honestly, I love love teaching um, and being able to translate those leadership experiences to the civilian world. Uh, it's hugely rewarding, and I, I might be doing some motorcycle riding instructing. If you're not oh, seeing sweet. a theme here, I love to teach.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, same here. Same here. That's awesome. Well, you're tying in what you love together. That's great. Yeah. another yeah, other than that,
1: well. um, trying to relax, trying to learn how to relax a little bit, maybe spend a little time around the house this summer, just chilling out. We'll see.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's good stuff, man. I, I love it. I, I, uh, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate that. Uh, and you're, you're no bones about it. I'm out here for my own self-preservation, but I want to help as many people as I can. But in the meantime, it's, it's therapy for myself. And uh, there's no greater therapy than just being out in nature. And there's something about being on two wheels, whether it be a mountain bike. I, I do bicycle and I ride motorcycles. I love camping. I love the outdoors. There's nothing more. I think it's just part of our biological nature is that we need as humans to be outdoors. There's a sense of peace that comes with that.
1: Absolutely. And uh, especially I find hiking and canoeing. When you go out for, say, a week at a time, and you're moving under your own power, you know, and life comes down to to move, eat, sleep, and that takes all your time and energy, that's where I found I can really find peace. When we take away those modern conveniences and the ability to, you know, cover great distance or communicate over great distance, when we take those things away, that instant gratification side of things, um, and you feel life slow down, it slows down in a really calm, really good, peaceful way and uh yeah and and being out you know freezing my ass off on the bike but waking up to you know a a sunrise in the mountains in in British Columbia or on the east coast you know and and waking up to um or you know having snow flurries in August in the northwest territories and all those you know it ties back to those hardships that we loved so much Mm -hmm. you know they suck when you did them but you look back on them fondly and I get to experience some of those things again too and and to be kind of just out on your own, under your own power, it's, mm. it's empowering, it's exciting and it's rejuvenating.
0: No, I I love it. And that's, like you said, that's where I find myself. And I think that, that ties back to our, you know, inner, inner human being, like that's, we're supposed to be there. That's how we're wired and that's therapeutic in itself. So I encourage people all the time, find a way to get outside, get out there, have those adventures, all these creature comforts of our cell phones and Netflix and drive throughs and all that stuff. It's not you're not going to find true happiness there. It'll, it'll satiate, satiate you, especially if you've got depression, anxiety and all that, like it gives you just enough to kind of get through, but to really feel alive and to really heal, like get out there and be a part of nature. That's
1: yeah. Get out, get out and find a little bit of discomfort.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Go out yeah. and do some hard things. Get make. you know, yep. it doesn't have to be like physically hard, but like you said, camping and you get a little cold in the morning, right? <laughs> you got to, go, go fish and cook your own meal. You know, it's all that stuff is good for you. It's good for the soul. Yeah. Well, how can people get, well, well, before we transition out the door, one more thing, one more question. What's, um, what two questions, what book or books have made the greatest impact on you or one that you recommend the most for people to read?
1: Oh, um, well, I definitely, you know, I, 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 uh, I definitely, you know, took aboard the dichotomy of leadership and extreme ownership from Jocko Willing, uh, just because it was, it was a great to kind of see that how to how to transition some of that experience to the civilian world and how to communicate it. I found that really helpful. Um, but the one book that um, I have to recommend to people is called uh, My Father's Son. It's by Farley Mowat, and Farley Mowat was a uh, he was a famous Canadian author. Uh, naturalist, but he's also a veteran of uh, World War II, the Italy campaign, and his father was a veteran of World War One in the same regiment. And my father's son is all letters from Farley Mowat to his father and his mother, and you know, uh, back home. So there, some are written by his father, some by his mother, some by him. And what really struck me was between a World War One and Two veteran, they're talking about transition and the challenges of coming home and, and connecting with people who didn't share those experiences. And it was the same in World War I. You know, that the, the, the things that were written about World War I uh, from his father would apply to World War II, Korea, they'd apply to Afghanistan. It was, it was interesting to see how that struggle is timeless uh, as far as dating back, you know, 100 years. Uh, so that was a real eye-opener. It was a, it was a great book to read. You know, it's, it's broken into short segments. So, yeah, my father's son. Uh, couldn't hmm. recommend it enough.
0: I'm going to put that on my bucket list, or my reading list on my bucket yeah. list, my reading, my reading list. Cause I haven't, I have heard, I've heard of that book before. Someone else had mentioned it before. I'm going to check that out. I think it's a the topic. of the was, transition.
1: Yeah. And he was, you know, he's a young Lieutenant. He was always kind of an arsehole and a bit of a rebel rouser. So I identify with that as well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. So one final thing, I always like to hand my mic over to, uh, to my guest. What question do you have of me?
1: Oh wow, Jay! I was not prepared for that um, I guess I would ask you what is the thing about transit because your transition's coming up in uh, in yeah. about a month's time. What aspect of transition are you most apprehensive about? What's the thing you're most concerned about uh in terms of uh, transitioning to
0: civilian life? I think for me it's it's Shedding that identity that, um, you know, the, the Army, for me, it was something that I pursued to close the door on a uh, just a really tough upbringing. And it was my safety, my, my handrail. No, no matter what's going to happen, the Army's going to be there. It's an abusive relationship, right? But yeah, the, the Army's going to take care of you. They smack you around a little bit, but they're going to make sure that you're feltering and shed. Uh, but I ha- you always have that handrail there and you always have like the people around you in that community and just letting go of that. Like like we talked right before we, we hopped on. Uh, I've got to go turn in all of my gear. Right. My 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 helmet and my body armor and all of those things. Right. And it's just th- th- when I walk the stage, it's the last time I'm probably going to wear my service uniform, you know, and it just feels like I'm shedding my identity. I'm letting go in one aspect. I'm excited, but then I'm also scared. That you know, because once you're out of uniform, that's pretty much it, unless World War III happens. Um, you know, that, that's probably going to be it. And so that's probably the you know the the community, this the 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 I guess the false sense of security because that that's security, like i I know I'm going to be okay. Yeah. But when I initially think about it, it's scary. But then I'm like, okay, I've got a great support network. I'm doing all the right things right now. I'm going to be okay. But it's still there. It's still there. And so that's probably my biggest fear.
1: Stepping into the unknown,
0: stepping into the unknown. Yeah.
1: And it's funny. I I was a keynote speaker at my graduation um, a month or two ago, because our graduation was postponed. And that's what I talked about. I talked about stepping into the unknown, you know, you guys are leaving school and, you know, kind of going out into the world and it's, it's scary. And I, and I related that to me, I said, you know, 23 years in the forces and been been to a lot of places and done a lot of things, but how scary it was to step into the unknown, but also that, you know, a lot of times when you're afraid of something that it means it's the right thing to do. And that's where the growth is. So, and I, yeah. and I know I don't need to tell you that, but, um, but yeah, that, you know, that was, that was that one thing. And again, with connecting with civilians was sharing that fear, despite, you know, I've experienced things they could never, you know, they could never fathom and they feel like, Oh, you know, I could never do that. I could never face that. And, but I said, you know, leaving just coming to school, uh, something for them coming out of high school was maybe there's some some fear, but it was probably an easier transition for them than it was for me. I was fearful. I was stepping into the unknown. I was apprehensive, and yeah. but it's yeah. it's taken that step, you know, despite that fear, and that's where all the growth happened for me. So
0: you know, I've 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 stepped off on soil in Iraq. I've been in the unknown numerous times. The army has done that for me numerous times. It's just a different operational environment. I'm yeah. going to take all the skills that I have. And just double down on those. And that's what connected me with what my next purpose is, right? I can teach and coach and mentor and do all the things without wearing a uniform and still serve. And, uh, you know, knowing that is giving given me comfort that despite the unknown, I'm going to be okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, finding that purpose for me too. How do I serve beyond the uniform? How can I still give yeah. back, uh, but in a way that's meaningful to me? And And yeah, and I think... Yeah. You, you hammered it, man. You know, it's, uh, um, as cheesy as it sounds, you know, most of us, I didn't, you know, I joined to serve my country. Now I joined cause I wanted to blow shit up and and, <laughs> and like, let's be yeah. honest. Um, but that part of, of the pride that comes with service and, and seeing the value in your service was something that, you know, that grew over time. And I definitely, you know, making sure that I'm doing something that's of worth and fulfilling, uh, and that's maybe the other thing like with transition, find something that's personally fulfilling and you see the value in it. And, you know, you obviously see the value in, in coaching in the podcast. I see the value in going out and encouraging others to just talk about mental health, you know? So it's, yeah. uh, yeah, rock on yeah. brother. It's yeah. great. It's great to hear.
0: Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we're on the same mission and uh, same journey together. And I look forward to uh, catching up at some point, riding some motorcycles with you.
1: That would be awesome. You know what? I've got to plan a, uh, i got to plan a U.S. tour. I'll have to get on yeah. that.
0: Yeah, well, definitely. Well, keep, keep me in mind. And uh, for those listening, so a lot of people know I have the other podcast, Budget Overland, where we just talk about uh, vehicle-dependent travel and camping. And we're going to have you on that podcast to talk. You know, we talked a lot about PTSD and mental health and transition. That one's going to be more toward, we're going to talk about your adventures, your kit, your setup, and all that stuff. So if you liked our conversation today, you want to learn more about that. We haven't recorded it yet, but I'm sure by the time you listen to this, it'll be in the show notes, so you can connect there and uh, listen to part two, where we talk a little bit more about uh, your travels, and I want to know more about your motorcycle and your kits and all that stuff. So,
1: right on, talk about the fun stuff.
0: Yeah, but uh, thank you so much. How can people get in contact with you?
1: Uh, they can contact me through Facebook, Dispatches Adventure Ride, or www.dispatchesride.com if they want to go through uh, through the website. And yeah, uh, all my contact infos there, so you know anybody can reach out anytime and if anybody wants to chat about anything or has any questions, you know, I'm always there.
0: I love it. I love it. your tagline ending mental health stigma one kilometer at a time. I love it. <laughs> all right well thank you for, uh, for being here. If you're uh, if you're listening to this, you want to contact myself or Mike, all the contact informations in the show notes, just encourage you to do that. And uh, just to truly appreciate you taking the time to listen. Once again, if you've gained any value, share this episode with someone that may uh, that it may benefit. And um, you know, just I just appreciate the community for the continued support of the Do Hard Things Nation. And I just encourage you to to just continue. Life is challenging. Just keep doing the hard things. Keep getting after it day in day out. And uh, you know, we'll we'll navigate this life together. And uh, just keep doing the hard work so you can achieve your highest potential. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you're notified of future episodes. I would also love to know, what is your takeaway? What what insight did you get from today's episode? You can screenshot this, send it to me on social, post it on social, tag me. And when you share like that, someone else, someone else, out there may need to hear this message today. Only 10% of people are engaged in personal growth and development. And uh, there could be a nugget here that could put someone in a positive trajectory. So feel free to share that, tag me in it, send me a direct message, send me an email, let me know what your thoughts are. And you can you can connect with me on all social media. You can send me an email at J jay at Take a moment, leave a review on iTunes. No matter if you're listening to Spotify or any other platform like iTunes, I guess is the gold standard for, uh, for reviews. And it really goes a long way for, uh, the algorithm for people searching for personal growth and development. And it helps us go a long way. means a lot to me that you took a couple minutes to do them. I, I, you know, read through all of them and you know, it, it just feels good knowing that, uh, that this show is impactful. So if you gain any value, just has to, uh, that you do that. Um, uh, if you want to level up, if you want to take the next step in your personal growth and development. You can go to jtegs.com, J-A-Y-T-I-U G scom We've got a variety of options. we got one-on-one coaching, high-performance coaching through the High Performance Institute, certified high-performance coach. We've got a few different curriculums that I take people through. I also do group coaching. If you have an organization that needs a speaker or you want a live workshop, I can come in and deliver some training to you and your organization. We also have the uh, exclusive Forge Mastermind group. That is uh, an elite community of like-minded people that are growing together, and uh, we have a weekly call there. And uh, we're going to be rolling out new content for that. And then also we got apparel. So the uh, you know we've got to go to dohardthingsapparel dot com. Get you do hard things shirt. Show the world that you do hard things. We got hoodies over there. We got hats. We got we got stickers. We got patches. A variety of different things, and we got a, a variety of different models uh, coming out. So. You can show the world that you do hard things and you can go over there and support us that way. That'd be great. So, in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Keep doing hard things. We'll see you guys in the next episode.